Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the Word of God. Amen. If you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse number 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. It is a beautiful and yet tragic story. God doesn't make mistakes. When God calls a man or a woman to his service, God knows what he's doing when he calls them. If you're here this morning and you have the call of God or you have been positioned with purpose. God did not make a mistake when he called you. The story of Saul is such that there was not a goodlier man in all of Israel, positioned, anointed, and empowered. He had God's authority, grace, and was positioned for the kingdom of God. The tragic ending of Saul's life is not that he wasn't called, it's that he forgot the purpose for which he was called. The Lord will help me for just a few moments this morning. I want to preach to you the tragedy of misplaced purpose. The tragedy of misplaced purpose. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands to heaven, and let's invite the Lord to speak all over this room. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for what we feel in this house. I pray, God, that your anointing would overshadow this room. Would you speak to this great and wonderful body of believers? We give you praise and glory and honor. Would you put your hands together and honor the Lord with your praise today? Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Samuel, the prophet, a man born from adversity. He is the product of a barren woman's prayer request. Eli will openly rebuke Hannah in the temple as she struggles to eke out the words of her request. Mislabeled as a drunken woman, Hannah clarifies her request to the seer of Israel. If God, she said, would grant me my petition, I will give my son back that he may serve the Lord in his temple all the days of his life. Samuel will learn the voice of God and will mature into perhaps the greatest prophet of the Hebrew people. Samuel never missed. And not a word fell to the ground. And from Dan to Beersheba, everyone knew that he was established to be the prophet of the Lord. It's in this context that we meet Samuel in his first encounter with Saul. Saul is there to solicit the help of the prophet as he endeavors to recover the straying livestock from the family farm. Saul meets a prophet of which he can't even identify. And there, instructed of the Lord, Samuel uncorks the vial of oil and says these words, for God hath anointed thee to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. God knows what he's doing when he calls a man to his service. First Samuel chapter nine, and there was not a goodlier man in all of Israel. Defined from its original transliteration, it means Saul was the most appropriate intellectual and most valuable man in all the nation. God 
chose Saul. He was the best the nation had. Brilliant, appropriate, valuable, armed with both propriety and intellect. And now the fresh smell of oil on his brow from the anointed hands of the prophet who never missed. The tragedy of Saul's life is that he misinterpreted what God had called him to be. God never anointed him to be the king of Israel. God anointed him to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. Captain is not a position for royalty. It is the title of a military commander. Because God never called Saul to be a palace-dwelling monarch. He was anointed to be a battle-ready defender of the heritage of the Lord. Can I stop here and make this statement? That we are not called and positioned for titles and names and thoughts and ideas. But God has positioned the church with an armed sword ready to defend the inheritance of God. We are not anointed to be paddle. We are not anointed to be palace dwelling monarchs, but we are anointed to be battle ready defenders of the heritage of the Lord. Can I remind this apostolic church this morning that some things are worth fighting for? Can I remind you that there are some things that are worth fighting for? Jude said this, that we should contend for the faith. Woo! I feel as though a few months ago I was in prayer and felt like the Lord spoke to my spirit and said there are three particular areas in the church that are under attack. First is our demonstrative worship. First is our demonstrative worship. Brother Thornton, I preached in a church not too long ago. The Holy Ghost began to move in the sanctuary. And sitting on the end of one of the pews was a man who certainly had become a part of the church society and culture. And with his arms folded, he watched the man take a lap around the room. As he did, he folded his arms and he said, Really? Aren't we past this yet? And I said, I hope to God we never get past it. We shouldn't have to preach you out of your pews. Because there's something that worship does that nothing else will do. I want to help somebody. I'm glad to be a part of an apostolic church. The greatest church that God ever put together is the church that you and I belong to. And God did not call us to be part of a docile society, but he anointed us and positioned us with great purpose. For one generation shall praise thy works to another. Not just teach it to them, not just tell it to them, but we ought to praise it to them. I feel a little help in this house. I'll tell you the reason your moms and dads walked into an apostolic church with a needle in their arm and a cigarette in their fingers, but they walked out talking in tongues because there was a worshiping church that was proclaiming the glory of God. I'm glad to be a part of a worshiping church. But our heritage should not be littered with worship. And our future should not be predicated on talk about worship. The Bible said that Jesus walked into Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. And Mary's ticked. You don't want Jesus to be your pastor. Because Jesus don't even show up to the funeral. We got folks that fuss because we don't show up to the hospital on time. 
But Jesus didn't show up to the funeral. Some friend you are. Let me tell you what else Jesus did. Jesus showed up to watch the offering. I'm going to tell you, you'd be a member of the neighboring church next week if Jesus took the offering in your church. Because the parallel to the present day is Jesus walked to the collection plate, pulled out the envelope, opened it, and read the check amount in front of the church. And he said, you're not giving enough. And she gave all she has. You don't want Jesus to be your pastor. You let your bishop walk to the collection plate and read out how much you got and tell the church that you're a non-giver. I lost a few then, but I'll preach you happy in a minute. Jesus walks into Mary and Martha's house. He didn't even show up for the funeral service. Behold, he stinketh. And he walks into the house and Mary's ticked. Without being too crass, she just folds her arm. Jesus is here, Mary. If I could just kind of speak for Mary, she says, I don't care if Jesus is here or not. If he wants to talk to me, he can walk his little happy self right up in this house because if he really cared, he'd have been here two days ago while Lazarus was yet sick. Jesus walks in the room and he says, Mary, do you believe I can do this miracle? And she said, Jesus, I believe he'll live in the resurrection. I believe we got a future. Jesus looks at Martha, hoping to find some faith. And he said, Martha, do you believe? And she said, well, Jesus, if you'd been here while he was yet sick, I believe perhaps that you could have somehow averted this crisis. And Jesus looked at both of them and said, do you not know who I am? I am the resurrection. Can I, just, can I just put this in terms we understand? We got too many churches that are living in our history. And we're living with past churches we planted. And we're living with past experiences we had with God. And we got some who are doing nothing than, more than dreaming about the future and having a little faith about what might be. And Jesus looks at all of us collectively in the same room and said, do you not know who I am? I'm a right now God. You don't have to believe God for the past. And you don't have to believe God for the future. But I'm telling you, Sunday morning, he can walk in your room and do what no other power can do. For he said, I am an ever-present help in your time of need. You don't have to believe for the past. You don't have to think about the future. But right now, there is a God who can do exceedingly and abundantly above all you can ask or think according to the power that worketh in you. And that power is in this room this morning. Our worship is under attack. And our holiness is under attack. We're an apostolic church. The greatest church that God ever put together is the church that you and I belong to. And we belong to an apostolic church where we still believe in gender distinctions. This is an apostolic church that still believes doctrinally in the death, burial, and resurrection. We are an apostolic church. Perhaps the challenge of our hour is that you can understand the imperative of a thing in the church merely by the battle it takes to maintain it. The third thing is the supernatural. We have become very careful to explain away 
how things can happen without spiritual intervention. Can I help this church? We are an apostolic church. And we do believe in demonstrative worship. And we do believe in holiness. And we do believe in the supernatural. I'm glad to be a part of the church. Romans 16 says, Jude said we ought to contend for the faith. But Romans 16 says we ought to contend for unity. There are some things in the church worth fighting for. Our doctrine is worth fighting for. Our faith is worth contending for. Our worship is worth fighting for. Our holiness is worth fighting for. The supernatural is worth fighting for. But can I say to you that your brother is worth fighting for? Cain did kill Abel. And I'm not going to wade too deep into this. Because you know all of those little things they put on the screen there when good Bishop Woodward preaches. The reason they put them up there is for people like me. Because I have to have something to read while he's teaching so I can make it to the next point. <laughs> so I won't get too far into Cain and Abel. But Cain don't kill Abel because he hates him in the terms we use to define hate. Cain killed Abel because he wanted to control God. Because if he can kill his brother, he eliminates the options that God has to bless. Because sometimes it's easier to kill your brother than change your sacrifice. And some of us wonder why the favor of God is not present in our life. And it might be because our sacrifice is not being received of the Lord. And rather than to change what it is to what God accepts, we would rather kill our brother so we don't have to rearrange our behaviors. Woo, I'd like to help somebody. We need to stop trying to control God. I was preaching for Brother Pasley a number of years ago. And his son-in-law, Tom, was the youth pastor at that time. And he took me over to a museum there to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as we were walking through the museum, I saw this little Esra God. And there was a professor from the University of Jerusalem. And he had written a little excerpt about their findings in the archaeological dig. He said in his statement, Israel was not always a monotheistic society, but at many times throughout their history, they served a plurality of gods. And here is one of the examples that has been unearthed in an archaeological dig. And while I'm standing there, I say to the Lord, the wicked, why would a people that you delivered out of 430 years of bondage and promised them a land that would be houses they did not build and vineyards they did not plant and you would drive out their enemies from before them little by little and you led them across the Red Sea and you were the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and you became the, the factor that kept the enemy Pharaoh's army from overtaking them in the Red Sea and you led them to victory. How is it that they can leave serving that God into serving a pocket size paperweight and the Lord spoke to me so clearly in that museum that day and he said this because they wanted a God they could control we got too many people who want to control God because then God has to show up at every birthday party we tell him to show up to and then we become the God and he is no longer God because the Bible said you become the mirror image of the idols that you craft with your hand. Can I help somebody in this room? But when your life is out of control, you want a God that is in control. I don't want a God I control. I want a God who can do the supernatural. Yeah.
own a God who can walk into a Sunday service where I don't have all the answers, but the glory of God shows up in a supernatural way and does what no other power can do. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 27. Neither give place to the devil. You know what you and I have the power to do? We got the power to run the enemy off. We do. Neither give place to the devil. That phrase means run the enemy off. I want to preach to some wonderful pastor in this church. You have the authority to walk into your assembly and run the enemy off. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. Jehu was anointed. He was anointed and had authority over Jezebel. You know, we make Jezebel this character in the Bible that is all made up and possesses all the characteristics that we assign to her and they in fact are true. But Jezebel's name simply means uncovered or unsubmitted. And she marries Ahab and Ahab's name means of another. In other words, he just picks up the identity of whomever he's in the room with. Watch it. When he's sitting in the house with Jezzy, he agrees with her. And when he's out there with the prophet, he agrees with the prophet. He just merely takes on the identity of whomever he's in the room with. And so unsubmitted marries uncommitted. And they produce a daughter whose name is Athaliah and her name means affliction. Because unsubmitted and uncommitted will always produce affliction. And the Bible said that Jehu pulls up in front of the house and he yells into the eunuchs and he said, who's on the Lord's side? Who's on my side? Who's on the Lord's side? And all the eunuchs wave out the window. We are. I read it one day, Brother Hagen, and it occurred to me that there's a home, a palace full of people that consider themselves on God's side. They show up to church every Sunday. They love God in their way. But they're still controlled by the spirit of Jezebel. Do you know you can have wonderful people that attend your church that love God, but are still controlled by Jezebel. And the Bible said that the prophet yelled up there and said, kick her out. Let me help you. You can be anointed to deal with that spirit, but the people who are controlled by it have to be willing to kick it out. I, I'm going somewhere, stay with me, but there needs to be a confrontational spirit that comes back on the church. Saul, Saul will circumvent the office of the prophet and offer his own burnt offering because Samuel has been delayed on his journey. We better learn to wait on God because if we're not careful, we'll get out of our role and usurp control because of timing. Can I say this? Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Time is a tattletale. It reveals the difference between the tear and the wheat. It will identify the fool from the wise. It will expose the heart of a king who has deviated from the course that he was called to. You learn to wait on God. Saul is two to four years into his appointment when he builds his first altar. We need an altar in our life. But the altar is not all too often what we define it as. The altar is the place where you die. For Romans said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
Present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the old covenant, we killed the sacrifice before we put it on the altar. But in the new covenant, it is a living sacrifice that crawls on the altar. And so God said, you need to build an altar, Brother Moulter, and you have to crawl on the altar. The problem with living sacrifices is that we keep crawling off the altar every time the heat gets turned up. Matthew 21, we see this act of Christ that appears to almost be uncharacteristic of him. He goes walking through the house and he's turning over tables and kicking out money changers and he's confronting all the things that have polluted the house of God and he makes this very profound statement that we make about prayer for my house shall be called a house of prayer but ye have made it a den of thieves and I certainly believe that it is applicable that we uh, have houses of worship that are defined by our prayer conditioning. Thank you Brother Keck. But the truth is that Jesus is angry and he's not angry over the improper weighing of money because he calls both the buyer and the seller a thief. Jesus' problem in this confrontation is that they have removed the act of sacrifice from offering because they can show up to church and flip the shekel into the hand of another who has fed the lamb, who has worked the land, who has led it beside still waters, who has groomed it to find out whether it carefully meets the standards of sacrifice at all. And we merely stand in front of the altar and watch a sacrifice that someone else gave. And Jesus said, what you've done is you've replaced the act of sacrifice with nothing more than an offering. I want to help somebody in this church is that God wants the church to build altars, but altars are a place of sacrifice. They are the place of death. It is a place where you go beyond what you have the capacity to do because you render yourself useless by annihilating your flesh and getting on the altar. Saul doesn't build altars. Saul learns to circumvent the office of the prophet. I want to stop and make a very important statement to all of this multi-generational church that is here this morning. And that is that everyone in this room needs a man of God in your life. I want to say this very carefully, not a shifting man of God, that when he doesn't agree with you, you go find another. Who is the spiritual authority in your room from the oldest to the youngest? Who is the man of God that has veto power in your life? Who is the voice that you submit to? Because the truth is Saul made a case for circumventing the office of the prophet and building his own altar because he chose to choose the very issue that made Samuel weak to give him the reason to live how he wanted to live the entire time. He's late. He's the tardy prophet. And Saul endeavors to deviate from the course that God had called him to. Because he looked for the human frailty. I'm not talking about sin. He looked for the personality quirk that he didn't like. And he built his own altar and he circumvented the office of his prophet so he could do what he wanted to do. I, I want to say this very carefully to every individual in this room. If we're not careful, we become idol worshipers. Because there isn't anyone who is allowed to have a voice in our life that will disagree with us. Who is the voice that can speak into your life that you surrender in submission? 
Saul doesn't have a pastor and he doesn't have an altar. The Bible, the Bible says that Samuel shows up to the field where the Amalekites should have been annihilated. And standing there is Saul with King Agag. And the man of God says to him, is that the lowing of cattle I hear? Is that the bleeding of sheep I hear in the distance? Did not God tell you to walk into this city and annihilate every man, woman, boy, and girl, every lamb, every flock, every oxen, everything that breathed in this city? God said for you to kill it, but you have let it live. And because now you are not walking in obedience with God, God has taken the mantle of anointing from you and he has given it to one better than thee. Because rebellion becomes spiritual. Because rebellion is nothing more than the out of hand rejection of God and taking him from the throne of your life and seating yourself on that throne. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hath rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. Saul lost his ability to confront his enemies. And now all Saul can do is throw javelins at real anointing. Because there's only one thing that you can do when you've stopped building altars and you have rejected the voice of authority. The Bible said that the maidens are singing when Saul and David come walking into town. The Bible said, while the maidens sing, hear me. While the maidens sing, they say, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. The Bible doesn't say that they're wrong. And the truth is that Saul doesn't have a problem with the fact that they're right. Because if he did, he would have picked up the sword and got back in the battle. He don't have a problem that it's true. The problem is they're saying it. And when you don't have altars and you don't have an elder voice in your life, there isn't but one other thing to do and that's become appearance oriented. Bible said that standing there with King Agag, that King Agag said, is not the threat of war past? But Saul doesn't deal with the issue. Saul just says, why don't you come over here and stand by me and let's worship together so that the hope, hear me now, so that the host of Israel, it appears to them that there is still something here that has long since departed. God help the church that we don't know what it's like to have good church because of some memory we have in a wonderful apostolic environment. God help the church that we are not surviving on what happened in bygone years. That we have forgotten to build our altars. We have forgotten the act of submission to our elders. And thus we have produced nothing more than something that is appearance oriented. For he said there will come a time that they have a form of godliness but they did 
deny the power thereof. I want to help this church. Every Sunday we ought to have the power of God show up in our assemblies. We shouldn't talk about healing. We shouldn't talk about the supernatural. We shouldn't have conversations about years gone by when people got the Holy Ghost. But there ought to be an outpouring of the Spirit in our congregation every Sunday morning and Sunday night. Keep standing, I'm almost done. I went to a park over here because there's nobody ever there. I took the kids and we were playing ball. I got out of the truck and there were some people there, which is rare. And so I'm walking the little walking trail, obviously by looks, not because I was trying to get in shape. I was spending a little time with the kids. And when I walked up, I'm standing there playing catch with Rhett and Knox and these three ladies walk over there. And they said, sir, how are you today? And I said, I'm fine. How are you? And they said, well, we do a Bible study here on this night every week in this little pavilion over here. And she said, today, she said, our Bible study is about the spirit. And none of us know about it. But we were trying to Google it and we can't get reception. Would you happen to know anything about it? And I said, well, I'm glad you asked because I just happened to know a little bit about it. And in about 15 minutes, I walked them through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I said, there's nobody here to lift your hands. Yeah, right. And when we left the park, three of the four were talking in tongues. <laughs> Let me help somebody in this room. It isn't for the past and it's not for the future and it isn't relegated to the inside of your building. But I'm telling you when you worship God and you are not appearance oriented and you are not careful about the service you lend to God, he will do something supernatural in your church for he is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all you can ask or think according to the power that worketh in you we don't need to look like the church and sound like the church and dress like the church we need to be an apostolic church difference The difference between Saul and David. You know, perhaps it is that in our text is that when we lose our ability to have spiritual authority and we stop building altars, it produces appearance orientation and then we resort to throwing javelins at the things we once possessed but no longer can coexist with per- How, hear me now. How can Saul go from being God's chosen, anointed, 
intellectual, head and shoulders above everybody else, to the rejected who can't even coexist with real anointing. Glad you asked. Because he lost his ability to confront his enemies. Saul became a diplomat and lost his ability to confront his enemies both internally and externally. How is it that you measure head and shoulders above all the rest? In fact, there is none closer in stature to Goliath than Saul. And yet he will take out his helmet and coat and give his sword to a 15-year-old child to put him in battle against the Philistines' champion because he lost his ability to confront his enemy. Samuel will take out the knife and he will kill the king Amalek in an act that should have been executed by Saul because there's too many of us that want the preacher to fight a battle we don't have the stomach for. And then internally when an evil spirit comes on him, he will call for the harpist to come and play the music to drive away the evil spirit because he is unwilling to confront the issues that torment him internally. Truth is the antithesis of Saul is a man after God's own heart and he never met a fight he didn't like. Ooh, I like David. I like the ruddy lad who gets his resume from grabbing a lion by the beard and smiting him in his father's flock who grabs the bear and annihilates him for just trying to take one lamb. I'm going to tell you, when you got a bear under one arm and a harp under the other, there's not much you can't defeat with a fight and a song. In fact, and I'm done, you can come. There are two things that we find about David that makes him the replacement for Saul. You ready for this? He came on the scene fighting. How do we know him? Because he walked into the Valley Elah, Brother Thornton, and he rose to fame and he got his dad's house. He got the taxes taken away and he got the king's daughter because he's willing to confront an enemy that nobody else is willing to confront. He kills the enemies by the ten thousands. But he ain't done when he's dying. Because the Bible says that he calls his boy in. And he said, son, I'm about to pass the kingdom to you. He didn't tell him to build a shrine to his mother or build a bigger house or no. Read it. He said, son, I'm about to be gathered to my fathers. The kingdom's going to be yours. But do you remember Joab? Yes, dad. Kill him. Do you remember Shimei? Yes, dad. Kill him. We're introduced to David in a fight. <laughs> and David dies in a fight. So I've come to remind every man, woman, boy, and girl that's in this room that the tragedy of Saul's life is that he became a monarch and not a sword-drawing, battle-ready captain of the Lord's heritage. God didn't call you to a position in your church. God called you to be a warrior in the kingdom of God. God called us to take territory and win battles and face down giants and kill bears and slay lions and walk into Philistine camps and take back what the enemy stole from us. He, he called us to
to walk into Jerusalem and slay the entire community of Jerusalem and put Goliath's head on the post outside and remind him one day the anointing that's on me is going to come for what you possess in that city and Israel will have its capital in your walls because there's a fight in my spirit that I cannot lose what I have been anointed for. I'm done. I'm done. Hear me. Second Samuel 11. We get a picture of the error in David's life. We know two things about David. Firstly, that he killed Goliath made the Philistines the slave to the nation of Israel. But the second thing that we know is that one evening David walks onto the veranda and he peers into a neighboring estate and his eye is smitten with lust as he watches a maiden bathing. He calls for the woman and kills her husband. the gross negligence and error in David's life. The one mismark against his identity. Anybody know why? Anybody know why David lusts and gets caught up in what would be his one mismark against his legacy? You ready? And in the time when kings go to war, David stayed home. David's one mismark in his resume, in his legacy, in his lineage is merely this. The day he didn't fight is the day the enemy crept in and took the lust of his heart and turned it into the error that would bring a reproach on his family for their entire legacy. I want to help somebody in this room. You take out your sword and you get right back in the middle of the fight. I don't know what the problem is in your church. I don't know what the challenge is in your life, but I can tell you what will fix it. You stay in the battle. You confront your enemies external, but you look in the mirror and you figure out what your errors are internally because both can take you out in a moment of weakness. My sweet wife is here. She's nothing like me. I told the church when I was elected pastor, there'll be days you wonder whether you like me, but you'll love her. She'd given a Bible study to a gal. She picked her up. And they had the little Bible study and they're in the car. They're headed back home. My wife calls me. I'm in New York preaching. She called me. She said, babe, she said, this little gal, she said, she's sitting in the seat next to me and said a voice starts speaking out of her that isn't her. She said, I could tell that it wasn't her. And she said, tell you the truth, at first I was a little fearful. She said, that voice spoke out and said, Leave me alone. And if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to destroy your family and I'm going to bring chaos in your church. And that sweet little wife I got over there, that all four foot 11 of her, she said, she just mouthed back to me, no, I'm five foot. She said, I don't even know what came on me, babe. She said, I just remembered when I was a little girl and I got scared. She said, my dad used to tell me that you got more Jesus in your little pinky finger than the enemy has in all of his arsenal. She said, so while she was talking, she said, I just raised my pinky finger. 
and said, I don't have to live by what you're saying. I don't have to fall prey to the likes of this spirit. And I want to tell you that I'll pray and I'll fast and I'll get Bible studies. But God didn't send me all the way to Kansas City to be ruled by you. Can I tell you that we baptized her in Jesus' name and she came out of the water talking in tongues. I want to help somebody in this room. You can win the fight. You can win the fight. Just unsheath your sword, David, and you get right back in the middle of the battle. Greater is he. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. It's an old story. I'm done. Promise. By the way, Finn, the movie, Ben-Hur. Story says Charlton Heston went to Cecil B. DeMille. He said, Mr. DeMille. He said, I know that I got to ride the chariot or drive the chariot in the chariot scene. He said, I can drive the chariot. He said, I don't think I'm good enough to win. The story goes that Cecil B. DeMille looked back at him and he said, you don't understand. I'm the director. You just drive the chariot. I'll make sure you win. Some of y'all are too worried about the outcome of the battle. Do you not know who the director of this is? He said, if you'll just get in the chariot and keep driving, I'm going to make sure you win. You just unsheath your sword. You walk out into the battle at Eli. I'll still give you victory over Goliath, but we're not done. The Philistines are coming and Jerusalem is coming. For the increase of his government, Brother Keck, there shall be no end. When God is in it, you can't lose. Come on, pastor. Come on, pastor's wife. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Unsheath your sword and get right back in the middle of the battle. For God has foreordained a priest destinated victory. Lift your hands and open your hearts all over this house. Come on, woman of God. Come on, man of God. You're going to win. You're going to win. You're going to win. For the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You will win. Thank you for listening to this message. For more content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at the Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details.